Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi there, it's Mark Graben. This is episode 357 of the podcast. It is February 3rd, 2020, and joining me today is Michael Conroy, MD. He's the Chief Medical Officer of Sutter Medical Group in Northern California. So Mike was previously the medical director of the Lean Promotion Office for the Palo Alto Medical Foundation, and he was in that role when we first met, maybe almost a decade ago. Uh, back then, we collaborated on some Lean workshop training material for him to deliver to other physicians, and that, that was through my role at Catalysis at the time. But in today's episode, we'll talk about a number of things, including how he was first exposed to Lean as a physician. We'll take a few metaphorical elevator rides, if you will, to talk about how lean benefits patients and physicians. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about shifting from lean as, uh, as being tools or improvement events to being more of a way of thinking and a common operating system for an organization. Um, so again, uh, Dr. Conroy is board certified in internal medicine. He's a fellow in the American College of Physicians. After medical school at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, he did his residency at Virginia Mason Medical Center, where he worked with Dr. Gary Kaplan, who, who's now a well-known lean leader, um, who um, now has been CEO of that system. So it's a small world. We'll talk about their connections and um, being an internal medicine specialist and, and, and looking at systems and, and what that means um, in terms of lean. So if you want to um, see notes and learn more about um, this episode, you can go to leanblog.org 357. Thanks for listening. Well, again, we are joined today by Mike Conroy. Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here, Mark. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us. And, you know, I think it's always great to hear, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of angles um, to pick your brain about today, um, you know, physician perspective on lean, um, a physician educator who's educated others about lean, um, an executive within a medical group. So I'm really excited that um, we'll get to hear your perspectives. But as far as introductions go, can you tell the listeners a little bit more uh, about your background and, and your medical career. I'm, I'm always curious, even if you want to incorporate into the story, um, you know, why you chose a career in medicine. Well, I can tell you this, that when I was thinking about medicine as a career, I did not have any idea that I was going to end up uh, in a situation like I am in medical leadership and learning a whole paradigm of thought like um, lean so that part's been very interesting. I could tell you that uh, I became interested in being a doctor when I was a kid, and I realized that I was fairly successful in school, and I really did have an interest in um, helping other people, and it seemed logical that being a physician was the way to go at the time. Um, mm -hmm. There were events in my life as a child that spurred me on and inspired me. Uh, when I was a teenager, my older sister developed epilepsy. And it was um, a big eye-opener realizing that, you know, doctors can't cure everything that people might have, but they can mm. be very um, helpful, uh, even in those situations. So a lot, a lot of things went into that. I went through medical school, and then I did an internship in internal medicine uh, in Seattle at Virginia Mason and ended up deciding to become an internist. Uh, I practiced overseas for about five years in different roles before coming back and settling in California. And I've been here now for about 21 years uh, practicing internal medicine. My uh, exposure to lean sort of came in uh, at an angle, which I can get into. And one of my roles mm -hmm. relatively early on as a leader was as a regional medical director of quality. And we, my, uh, Foundation partner and I became introduced to different lean ideas and basically lean tools through a variety of ways. And so when I first became aware that there was a whole sort of world, thought world out there, um, that later become, became an important part of my career. 
Yeah, I'm just real, real quick, just clarifying question for those who don't know the terminology. When you say foundation, there's a kind of particular meaning for that term, right? Oh, thank you. Yes, I sometimes forget that I practice <laughs> in California, which is unlike most of the rest of the of the U.S. Uh, in California, nonprofit medical systems have a requirement to have a model where physicians can be employed by a foundation through a group model. And so my medical practice has been in a medical group that contracts with Sutter Medical Foundation to provide physician services. So when I uh, talk about a foundation partner, there's always administrative leader in the foundation who has shared responsibilities with me over, um, in this case in my job now, operations of the foundation uh, staff, the facilities, and the physicians. Yeah, because I, I mean, that that threw me off first time I ever heard. You know these these medical foundations. I thought like, oh, okay, they're they're raising funds to help pay for, but it's really it's a, a different name for. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I guess a, a physician group, a physician practice. Yes, and yeah. a business yeah. construct around how to deliver yeah. how we deliver medical care. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll delve more into your, you know, first introductions um, to Lean. Um, I, I find it interesting uh, that, that you're an internist. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I'm, I'm quite certain Dr. John Toussaint is an internist, right? That is correct. Um, I believe Dr. Jack Billy from the University of Michigan is also an internist and a, a really good Lean leader as well. That's true. Yeah. And then you mentioned um, Virginia Mason, um, their CEO, their longtime CEO and lean champion, Dr. Gary Kaplan. I think I'm less certain. I think he's also an internist. I'd almost have to, to Google this. Um, I'm pretty sure that's also true. Although I, yeah, I'd have to look it up. Um, I was there at a time I do my training there at a time when Gary was an emerging leader at Virginia Mason, uh, relatively, I guess, early in his leadership career. Uh, but it was clear that he had thoughts about how healthcare could be delivered better, um, even at that point when I when I was there. And so I did Google it. He, he is indeed board certified in internal medicine. So I, I'm, I'm not going to make a leap that it's only internists that um, gravitate <laughs> toward lean. But I think, you know, when I've talked with... Um, John and, and, and Jack, you know, there, there's something to be said for maybe you, you, obviously I'll let, let you explain this, that, that internists are, are looking more at uh, the body, the patient as a system, as opposed to focusing on, I guess, if you will, one silo within the body or how would you, how would you explain that? Is there an affinity to lean because of Yeah, that that's focus? an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, there probably is some correlation. Yes. Uh, internal medicine physicians are, specifically trained to deal with more complicated illnesses of adults and uh, often have to look at multiple systems and think about how they function together. Uh, we also are the supply of medical hospitalists and most medical specialists uh, do at least the first part of their training as internal medicine physicians. So I think there is something about if you want to take a bit of a leap to say systems thinking and trying to get to the root cause of sometimes very complicated problems and not assuming that the superficial or, or what seems to be the most obvious solution is the right solution. And also I imagine the, the fact that we have to deal with quite a bit of complexity, uh, you know, when we're thinking about delivering medical care, uh, maybe, you know, maybe formative to how some of us end up, uh, you know, in this form of leadership. Mm -hmm. And, and so when you think back, I'm, I'm curious, when you think back to your education, um, how, how, much, uh, how much exposure was there to management of either a medical practice or a hospital or, or anything about process improvement that you remember being taught in, in medical school or even things that people might consider, quote unquote, quality improvements? What, what are your recollections? Yeah, I, I can be very clear about that. Almost none in medical school. Um, to any of those topics, it was really focused on uh, 
the application of medical concepts and medicine directed towards an individual patient. Uh, at the time I went through school, there was recognition of social determinants of health being critical to long-term health, uh, but there was nothing like there is today about ideas about actually how to address those and the role of organized medicine in addressing them. Uh, residency, more exposure to the complexity of uh, leadership in a hospital and in a medical group, but it wasn't, I can't say I was deeply immersed in that. The process improvement, we did have exposure in both places, and it was mostly what I would call now relatively small-scale projects around specific mm -hmm. problems. Um, for example, uh, research projects as a resident that looked at you know, application of a certain medication in a specific group of patients, that kind of thing. But very little about, gee, could we think of ways that this entire hospital could run more efficiently? Or um, can the nurses on this floor actually change the way uh, they staff or change the way they approach their documentation or whatever it is that would allow more patient time? Um, very little of those kinds of concepts at that time. Yeah. And, and from, yeah, as, as you ended up, you said it, it was kind of a surprise. You never thought you would end up in um, a management or leadership role, putting aside lean for, for a second. Um, I, I, I guess, uh, you know, the, 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 I mean, obviously there's a lot that needs to be covered in medical school. And as a patient, I'm glad that happens. But uh, is, is the assumption that um, leadership uh, practices or methods are, are learned on the job, you're, you're seeing what's emulated by the leaders you first work for, I'm, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, like, as you moved into to leadership roles, how, how much thought was given to the way you led or, or management methods as opposed to reacting to things and, and kind of figuring it out as you go? That's a really good question. I think it's fair to say for most physician leaders uh, around the country, the, the former is really true. You sort of get into leadership many times because you're identified first as a great clinician. Um, that's very common. Like somebody's good at thoracic surgery, therefore they must also be good at leadership. So we'll make them a leader. There's a lot of that in medicine. The learning is mostly on the job, particularly at that time in my personal history. Although I did have opportunities to um, participate in some development training classes, mm -hmm. uh, courses that different hospitals might put on around leadership, that sort of thing. I can't say that the effort was sort of organized in a way that we would think of a talent and succession planning process, you know, anything like that. Uh, there are the occasional physician leader that, you know, knows when they're 25 years old that they want to be the CEO of a health system. I mean, that, mm. I think that's true probably in every industry. But interestingly, uh, people like that are fairly uncommon in medicine. It's much more the other way that you sort of get pulled into leadership. Um, you either are good at it or you are not. And then you... Um, depending on your personal interests, might advance through, you know, a, you know, a progression of more and more senior leadership. I'm super blessed now to be in an organization like Sutter Health, which actually offers quite a bit of specific leadership development, everything from providing challenging experiences to coursework, to reading, uh, to individual coaching. And at this point in my career, I'd say the last uh, eight years or so, that has directly supplemented my experiential learning uh, to help me be a more effective leader. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, what, what you describe um, is not unlike what you might see, you know, when I started my career in manufacturing, um, oftentimes the really, you know, top individual contributor engineer would then be made a manager because that was career and pay progression um, you know, the similar hypothesis that probably, you know, doesn't always prove to be true that if you're great at your job, you're going to be great or even um, effective as, as a leader. But, you know, I think back to even my first workplaces, um, one, one thing you said, you know, really got me thinking, you know, you get thrown into a role and either you're good at it or you're not as a leader, you're, you know, um, different organizations, and maybe you've seen this evolve as, as you've gotten involved in lean and, 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 you know, does that definition of what it means to be good at it 
uh, change over time. Because I think when I was at General Motors, boy, somebody that was considered you know, good at management was maybe really good at yelling and screaming at people. And that was obviously <laughs> a pre-lean uh, management model. And, and you know, I saw how GM, at least in my plant, um, was, was evolving and, and changing under some different Toyota-trained leadership. But I'm curious your thoughts around, you know, <laughs> everything there, being good at it or not, and, and, and what that means. How do we define that? I've seen an evolution in my career in healthcare, too. There is less of the leader by force, although it still occurs to some degree. Uh, I think healthcare, again, my direct perspective is Northern California, of course, but it seems like it has evolved uh, in the time I've been a leader fairly significantly that way. There's just a lot more understanding of what actually leads to effective outcomes hmm. um, and opportunities to learn and be educated and coached and so forth. And uh, I see it in many different ways. I see it expressed, for example, in county and state medical society levels, uh, uh, organizations like mine, um, conversations with independent physicians in our community. You see that manifest in a lot of ways. But in fairness, there still is a authoritative leadership out there in healthcare, as still exists, you know, in in, in other workplaces. But I like the way you frame it, where you're going to talk about lean leadership or servant leadership or different leadership models, and and I, I think there's high overlap, um, you know, between let's say lean leadership and servant leadership, um, or the Toyota notion adopted by you know, others, um, you know, this idea of respect for people that I think sometimes it gets confused with, with being nice or being the right thing to do. But I think when you frame it in terms of what leads to more effective outcomes, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's an interesting way of framing that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you can, if you can elaborate on that point of leading I, I not just because it's right, but yeah. Yeah, I have the same experience. And it's almost, uh, if you look at it from two directions, to become an effective leader using concepts like humble leadership, you're absolutely right. It doesn't mean not holding people accountable. It doesn't mean not providing direct and measurable, actionable feedback to people. Uh, that's very different. I, you know, We characterize that as being disrespectful if you don't tell somebody that uh, they're maybe not uh, performing to expectations or... Uh, you know, going in a different direction than, you know, you, they appeared to agree to in the first place, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's a learning curve for people from both sides of the spectrum. If you're effective and smart and good at problem solving, but quite introverted, it can actually be pretty hard to learn how to be an effective, humble leader because your comfort zone is coaching and providing direct feedback. To be, I mean, that, that pulls you out of your comfort zone, excuse me. Yeah. And the more sort of authoritative or you know, I know all the answers kind of leader, of course, has to pull themselves back and subjugate their desire to solve all the problems um, to get into that coaching mode. So uh, it is it is interesting to see people, leaders evolve um, and coalesce around, you know, here's here's maybe the most effective way we can uh, do this. Yeah, I, I, and it's funny you mentioned those, you know, those different styles. Like when I when I first got involved uh, in healthcare in 2005, I, I certainly had to sort of recalibrate. Um, you know, like when I was in manufacturing, it was usually trying to take the really aggressive, authoritative, answer-knowing leader, or you know, what John Toussaint calls a white coat leader. You know, they, they exist, in, exist in manufacturing and trying to help them, you know, dial some of that back. Well, then when I first got into healthcare, and in particular, you know, for the first two years, I, I was really um, in a lot of different medical laboratories. And, you know, the laboratory technologists, as much as they're going to generalize, kind of like you might generalize about engineers, tend to be introverted and, and thoughtful and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you're trying to coach them from a different direction where I learned to stop fearing that, you know, bad performance would lead to yelling and screaming. It was almost more of like trying to help coach people about how to even bring up the difficult conversation about the need for improvement. If, if people were, um, you know, just le le less um, willing or able, comfortable to bring up issues like that. I agree. Um, 
you know, there's there's so many things to learn as a leader that you don't understand necessarily by, you know, just your upbringing. Um, and one of the things that I really love about my job now is that I'm I learn every day, and I have no qualms about it. I've also learned to poke fun at myself if I'm in a setting where I'm, in, you know, talking with the frontline team about something, and the, uh, you know, my answer or my idea about fixing something starts to come out of my mouth. I just catch myself and say you know, I'm absolutely the wrong person to be making suggestions or trying to solve this problem. Um, and it's fun to catch yourself like that and realize that, you know, I'm going to be more effective if I, uh, if I coach than I will be if I tell. Yeah. And, and, and developing a new habit like that is not like flipping a light switch. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about trying to be mindful of that habit of not jumping in with answers or catching yourself or, or, you know, saying things that, that are more, um, you know, uh, things that evoke ideas from others instead of giving answers. Yeah, I think there's a lot in there. One is first of all, Chris making the decision that this is what I'm going to do. Right. But this also, for me, it's pulled in the concept of leader standard work because if I uh, believe that, uh, I can be more effective if I change and grow, develop as a leader in any direction. It really helps to be planful and organized around that. And the concept of leader standard work fits in because it helps to serve as a reminder uh, when I'm reacting, but it also helps to remind me to be proactive about practicing. You know, mm -hmm. am I asking for direct feedback from people in a way that uh, is open uh, and I can learn from? Am I um, purposely prepared to be coaching if I'm out on a, for example, we're doing tiered checking uh, on a medical uh, clinic uh, with the leaders there to be better prepared. And I think uh, that thought process has been very helpful using leader standard work. It's like any other habit. Uh, you need to be mindful and you need to practice a new way of doing it. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, kind of go back a little bit and think about kind of your own initial exposure to lean. You know, you said earlier, you know, you're a physician who never thought you'd get into lean. I mean, I guess I come at it, you know, I was a lean guy and an engineer who never thought he was going to get into healthcare. Um, but but do you, how, how far back do you remember kind of first exposures, um, education about lean? Well, for a time frame, it would have been in the mid 2000s when I first got exposed to some of the methods. And of course, there's some bleed over where uh, there are other sort of approaches or thought paradigms that really are using lean principles. So it's hard to, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg there. For example, the paradigm of just culture related to safety and quality events incorporates mm -hmm. a lot of exactly the same principles and approaches that you would say are respect for people and how you would approach problem solving from a humble leadership perspective, et cetera. Yeah. So my... Uh, when I first came to this area, I practiced as an internal medicine physician. I also worked as a hospitalist and had a couple of relatively um, straightforward, low-level leadership roles, uh, both in the hospital and in the um, office, in the clinic. And after a few years, I was approached by the chief medical officer at the time who asked me to consider being a operational physician leader, so being having oversight basically of about 20 other physicians. Um, I took that job and after a couple of years, someone else approached me and said, we'd like you to consider being our medical director of quality. Uh, both of those were manageable. Um, I had to cut back on my clinic time a bit, but they weren't unmanageable. Um, so I did both of those and it was really in the medical director quality role that I started to learn about specific, what we would consider lean concepts and heard the word lean for the first time. Um, that was through consultants that came to help us with some process improvement things, and they brought tools. They brought um, methods for root cause, uh, you know, uh, root cause problem solving, and for um, running a an improvement event of some type. And it wasn't brought in the characterization of we're bringing a whole sort of lean paradigm, but it was an introduction to tools. Mm -hmm. And then. Um, I, I advanced in my operational leadership and got a larger role, and our medical group merged with two other groups in the uh, 
in California to become what's known as Palo Alto Medical Foundation. And early on, probably like most organizations, there were some struggles about how we were managing across, you know, three different pre-existing cultures. And I, I remember this really clearly. I was sitting in my office one day and I had done some reading about systems thinking, mm-hmm. done some reading and been to conferences and heard about operating systems. Um, and I was sitting in my office one day and the two worlds just collided in my brain. It was, uh, it really was a light bulb Eureka kind of moment that um, one of the, one of the things that was missing as an organization um, was that we didn't have a common operating system and gee, wouldn't it be great based on what I've heard about lean in healthcare and non-healthcare industries. Wouldn't it be great if we chose lean as our thought paradigm and our operating system. And it really was, I mean, it really was like a light bulb. Uh, so for me, where that led is the Medical Foundation, Palo Alto Medical Foundation created a position for a medical director of the Lean Promotion Office, started up, you know, an office, uh, brought in, uh, hired some consultants who had been in healthcare and started promoting people from uh, the staff rank. And I applied for that job and was fortunate enough to get the job. So I was the first medical director for the LPO there. And it, it, it was just beautiful because it did bring the two worlds together. It's like, here's how we can teach people to operate, to think about strategy, to do large scale process improvement, to teach frontline people about daily improvement, you know, and on and on. Uh, while at the same time, improving the quality of the care that we're delivering, you know, keeping costs down, being more efficient. And so it was a, a great opportunity to influence the organization at that point. And it sounds like from, I mean, you know, you you were getting initial exposures, you were synthesizing different approaches. Um, It sounds like, you know, it it may have taken some time and you said, you know, like you said, things started connecting. It sounds like a pretty positive, um, you know, embrace of of lean. But I'm I'm curious either from your perspective or, or maybe what you hear from other physicians, were there were there concerns? Was there, was there any skepticism? And, and, and again, I ask this, you know, that from uh, a perspective that skepticism is, is fine and natural and, you know, to be, uh, you know, it's understandable, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, um, were, were there, were there concerns or what, what do you hear? So yes, there, there were concerns. Um, most physicians probably like people in most industries go to work every day in, in their case to take care of patients. And that's what their mind is focused on. When you're in a big organization, a big medical group, you sort of believe that other people will solve your problems for you. Um, I strongly suspect that's not unique to medicine. Um, So when you introduce and say, well, to get better requires a change in your behavior and the way that you think about coming to work every day, there's a lot of skepticism. Uh, Physicians are uh, highly time pressured. They don't like to take... uh, thinking time away from their patients, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there was a lot of skepticism, both against the, the, the big picture and against, you know, the, even the tools at times, um, you know, how could this possibly work? I remember one doc telling me that he was never going to solve problems using A3 thinking because, you know, basically he, he knew the answers and why <laughs> waste my time going around and talking to other people. So there was a lot yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, where the rubber hit the road though, was when we introduced things like daily improvement and actually did ask clinicians, physicians to change their behavior. People do start understanding differently. We use the concept in, you know, in medicine, we do a history and physical, and this translates fairly well to say that a PDSA cycle and lean thinking is very similar or really identical to forming a hypothesis in medicine. So we we get information from patients and external sources. We think through um, uh, possibilities about uh, what we're learning from that. Then we examine somebody and get physical data to confirm or to heighten our thinking and come up with a hypothesis. I think here's the mm-hmm. issue and here's my plan. And if your plan doesn't work, you come back and reevaluate your hypothesis and, and go forward. Uh, it was actually relatively successful to couch sort of lean and improvement thinking in those terms and in a way that physicians can relate. You know, Dr. Jack Billy, who I mentioned earlier from the University of Michigan and yourself and others do a good job of, you know, mapping or crosswalking that diagnostic process 
to to lean. Um, you know, I mentioned even uh, you know, for the listener's sake, and this is before we'd started recording, but I'd mentioned a friend of mine who has written a book about lean veterinary medicine. And one brilliant thing he, he did is that, you know, the book is very much outlined and structured in a way that parallels um, the, the, the patient diagnostic and treatment process with, um, you know, the idea of um, diagnosing and improving an organization. And, you know, I think he was really smart to do that considering his target audience's other um, veteran, doctors of veterinary medicine. Um, so, but, but Mike, when, when you're working, when you're educating or trying to bring other physicians into the fold, I'm, I'm guessing that's a very important point that you try to emphasize to them, that this is not an altogether foreign way of thinking. I guess, no pun intended, you know, people hear Japanese words and they might think foreign, but altogether different way of thinking, right? Uh, that, yeah, that very much is true. It, once you get past that it, local sort of immediate problem solving type of a cycle or thinking, because again, you back, back up and you say, well, you know, what is lean, quote unquote? Well, there's a lot more to it than um, solving that problem, even if you're mm -hmm. digging down and getting to the root cause, right? And uh, that's a whole nother level of complexity. I will tell you that working with uh, physician leaders, and I have a number of direct reports in my job now, one of my missions really in my job is to help them grow as lean leaders. And it's difficult in the physician world to get people to step up to the thinking around how does a system actually fit together? Why is it important mm -hmm. that you have clarity around things like True North and what your core strategies actually are, uh, what behaviors those lead to, and what you're not going to do. Um, that's, been a, that's been a big challenge. Um, and how that affects decisions that even happen at the front line. And so putting that sort of that larger picture together for people who aren't really fully immersed uh, is, is, has its own challenges, I would say. And, and so you know, I'm curious, um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll take a couple of um, proverbial elevator rides here. You know, if you're given, you know, the opportunity to do um, you know, elevator pitch or an elevator speech, let's say it's a mid-size height building. Um, so let's say, you know, if you're on an elevator with, with a physician, what, what's your, and he says, oh, so, you know, Mike, you, you're, you're doing this lean promotion office role now. What, what is this lean thing all about? Why should I care? For us, for physicians, it's really about being better at delivering care to patients, you know, making our day easier, making our practice more efficient without requiring that we, you know, hire a bunch more staff or, uh, spend four or five more hours a day doing work uh, that we can deliver much more effective uh, and efficient health care. At the same time, we do it well, your life will be better. Your life will be easier. Your staff will be happier. Uh, and it's really a win-win a for people all around. Yeah. And I mean, that, and, and that's, you know, I think of, you know, talking about in any setting, the idea that um, quality and efficiency can go hand in hand. That, that's difficult for people to wrap their heads around if, if they've been brought up in, um, you know, a system that, that talks about trade-offs, you know, whether it's an automotive manufacturing or I sometimes hear people in healthcare say, well, you know, better quality, of course, inherently must cost more. But we learn through lean, that's not necessarily true. So what, what are some things beyond an elevator ride to, to try to help physicians see that that's even possible? I think stories really work well, uh, you know, whether they're your own stories or you can relate them from somebody else. Cause you, you know, you get into the technical stuff and people fall asleep, right? Uh, give you a great example of that in medicine. It's, mm -hmm. I, I joke about this, but it's actually kind of true. Historically in medicine, when a doctor says I have a problem or we have a problem in our office, the answer that they will give to solving the problem is hire a nurse mm. and, you tell me a problem a doctor might run into, and I'll tell you, they're going to say the solution is hire a nurse. And, you know, sometimes that could be very effective, <laughs> but if the problem is happening once a month, then that's a pretty expensive solution. Uh, right. And if, and so sometimes you we, can't, you, sometimes you can't find the nurse. You have um, staff. Yeah, sometimes the solution itself is not practical. Yeah. So um, I'll give an example of uh, process improvement that we did in a GI department, a gastroenterology department, 
uh, where we had very big, a big department, very busy. Uh, they employed three nurses who uh, literally were on the phone all day responding to patient concerns. And there were many, um, you know, gastroenterology patients have sometimes life-threatening issues like bleeding. Um, they get infections and, you know, many things can happen. So it was important to be able to respond to patient needs. Mm -hmm. And it was felt like we need to hire more nurses because we're getting an ever-increasing volume of phone calls. Now, they had other challenges in their department. They recognized that the procedure suites they used were not all that efficient. Uh, they had trouble when people were done with procedures getting home on time or, or the family coming to pick them up were there in a timely manner. And uh, just a number of problems. But their, their focus was on we need to hire more nurses to man our phone lines. Yeah. We went through a fairly rigorous process improvement there, but focused on the throughput, focused on the ambulatory surgery center where they did their procedures and found a number of uh, easy wins and ways to help them be more efficient, move the patients through. And the physician found that with the greater efficiency, they had a lot more capacity to do procedures. And uh, people who are familiar with this kind of story can probably guess the outcome here. So what actually happened was all those phone calls that were coming into those nurses mm -hmm. were basically people that were waiting to get their procedure done and were still having symptoms of one type or the other or problems and either just needing a short-term solution or trying to jump the queue and sort of force, force their way in to get their procedure done more quickly. So when the procedure problem was um, <laughs> you know, fixed, the calls went away. Right. And instead of hiring more nurses, the department was able to repurpose their nurses to do more direct patient care, which they liked a lot better, um, and get them off the telephones. Um, and I, that, to me, that's an enduring story of uh, the right way to solve a problem that actually did save a lot of money. In fact, it increased the revenue of the department dramatically, yeah. their patient satisfaction dramatically. And we also found that um, there wasn't quite as much need for physicians as we thought, <laughs> to put it that way. We were able, so we were able to grow the patient volume uh, appropriately without stressing the physicians because, again, part of the sort of their challenges with access and volume weren't really – had nothing much to do with their decision-making or their skills. It had to do with the appropriate uh, diagnostic procedures for patients and getting getting this, those things done in a timely manner. So anyway, stories like that, you know, you tell tell a doc that you know, little effort on your part, you'll make more money, your life will be better, your patients will be happier, your staff will be happier. What do you think? It's kind of hard to argue. Might be hard to believe. <laughs> it's hard to it, argue. Well, it's definitely hard to believe. Uh, another good example: we're doing process improvement right now in primary care offices and. There are many places around the West Coast that have changed the way flow goes, you know, the, the flow of information and in patients through a primary care office to where the doctors and the staff get all their work done during the day. They're busy, but they get all their work done. They've done all their documentation, responded to all the patient issues and whatnot within 30 minutes or so of the end of their last patient visit. And they go home. They have nothing to do. You know, docs don't get back on their computer at night, et cetera. And when you come to a typical medical office and describe that to, you know, again, a typical primary care office, you do get complete disbelief and blank stares from people. It, mm -hmm. People cannot imagine that's even remotely possible. Uh, and, you know, it's wonderful to be able to show them places where that's happened and, yeah. um, you know, describe a process where they could get to the same place. Yeah. And then if they can get past the mic, but we're different. <laughs> that, that, that's another understandable yeah, I, um, source of skepticism to, to then work through. You know, I love the, I love the word different. I'll give you a story. I'll go back to this primary care work we're doing. We um, had one physician model something, do an experiment and try some new things uh, that were, you know, very helpful. They weren't, they weren't dramatic. They weren't overly dramatic. And uh, for several months was in regular dialogue with the physician who literally sat about eight feet away, um, described what he was doing, uh, showed data, showed how things were improving and talked about the possibilities. And then when it came time to involve the second physician in the work, uh, the second physician said, um, I don't believe any of this is even true. I don't want to participate. Uh, 
Mm. And, you know, that was somebody who was eight feet away. So you can imagine in our, in my current medical group, we have practices that are um, 85 or 90 miles from each other. And uh, you can imagine the challenges scaling up across the geography mm-hmm. because yeah, every doctor thinks they have the sickest patients. That's true. Yeah. Or other factors with, yeah, which let's say they're different, but um, if you are like, you know, try the, I mean, uh, the elements of, of your story there um, that, that, that you're telling, you know, kind of also goes back to the idea you were talking earlier about finding the root cause of medical problems you know, the story around, well, we're just going to add more nurses to handle these phone calls was, you know, clearly not getting to the root cause, as you explained, of why so many phone calls were coming in. Um, you know, that that's part of, um, you know, the, the, the way of thinking of lean, as, as, as you describe. Um, but I want to also come back um, earlier, you talked about the way of thinking, and you also talked about the idea of a common operating system. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and, and what you mean by operating system. Is, is that similar to what some people might call management system? Are there differences? Uh, but yeah, I think um, other people will have their own perspective on this. I tend to think of a management system and an operating system. I tend to think of those uh, in, in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, because to me, in the lean paradigm, the the management is, uh, or the the management and the operating, just have so much overlap. But again, I'm, you know, others will have you know perspectives on how they would refer to those things. Uh, to me, the the operating system has to do with the sort of the bigger picture about how do we make decisions, how do we pick, uh, how do we make decisions based on our values that are constant mm-hmm. and steady, very visible to people, um, and there's just a lot that goes into that. The operating system is how are you kind of running your business day to day? Um, and it's, you know, so it's driven by strategic thinking. There may be strategic initiatives. There may be um, uh, work to do around uh, large scale process improvement. Um, and then there's the day to day. Are we turning the lights on and keeping the doors open? Uh, so how do all those pieces fit together? Um, how do you staff? How do you um, um, how do you keep people or hold people accountable for commitments to work? How do you hit organizational goals, metrics, and targets? Those kinds of things, they all they all match together. And so when uh, I referred earlier to the three organizations, they had different leadership structures, different leadership styles, ranging from the relatively authoritarian to the relatively, I'll say, democratic. Both of those have you know pros and cons. Um, and to the way uh, people manage just the day-to-day business. Um, you know, do you just fire people if they don't perform or do you sit down and talk to them for two hours a day until they perform or is there some other way to go? And uh, how, how do parts of an organization even relate to each other? How do they even understand each other? How can they um, learn from each other? Those kinds of things. And that's where the light bulb went on in my mind saying, well, gee, you know, here's what Lean brings to the table what if all of us thought and behaved this way? What could be different? And then my, again, my world from the quality improvement background thinking, okay, lean can address all of these challenges we have in quality about uh, thinking about goals and targets, about identifying where our real problems are about, you know, is this a large scale solution or is it multiple small scale solutions? All those things um, uh, fit together. Yeah. And then how would you describe connections between, you know, you talk about strategic, bigger picture issues and, and running the business daily. Um, a couple of concepts that you've brought up already. Uh, true North, leader standard work. What, what are some of the ways that you, you would try to sort of help those be aligned, those, those practices or concepts? I think um, like any organization starts with the values and the sort of the true north, who you are and why. To me, the the real benefit of having an understanding of your your real key values is in the day-to-day decision-making. If you're forced to confront something where there are multiple possible options, um, all of them have pros and cons, how do you decide or what can you use to decide? Well, there's intuition, there's experience, uh, there's agreement among, you know, a group of peers and so forth. And all of those have value. 
Um, it's fundamentally different if you can key your decisions off an expressed value of the corporation that everyone has bought into. Um, you're less likely to go, you know, off path, I guess, to put it that way. So to me, it really starts there. Uh, strategy is a lot about saying no. Um, it's not just about where do we think or what do we think we have to do to kind of win in this market and so forth. Um, it's my um, experience in my corner of the healthcare world that we often get completely drowned in trying to do too many things at one time. And I've seen that a couple of times. We, uh, we had a retreat here in my current organization three years ago and realized that we had 177 ongoing quote unquote initiatives. And um, when I went around and asked leaders about what they thought of that and how effective we were at getting things done, I had the same response, multiple levels of the company. Um, we can't get anything done because, you know, I get told to do X and two months later I get told to do Y before X is done. Um, and so we don't really ever get anything done and we just have this big pile of work that, that we have to do. Yeah. Um, and I am very appreciative of the leaders of the organization took that to heart and said, okay, this is nuts. Let's stop doing 177 things at once. Let's focus on what are our values? What are the key strategies we think we need to uh, engage with? And then what are the things that are goals and targets of our organization that, that it's okay to let, you know, our frontline folks work on and solve in their own area, um, that we don't have to have a big initiative over every, every piece of work. So yeah. how that worked for us, for example, two years ago, we decided that um, blood pressure control was a major quality focus. Mm -hmm. And we put out the goal and said, this is the target we need, um, made some tools available and set our folks loose at the frontline department level to do problem solving. And they did a fantastic job. Our metrics went up significantly and uh, we actually significantly exceeded the original target we set for ourselves. There was very little thou must do X, Y, or Z from any kind of a central level. It's here's the target. How can we support you? It mm. was it was dramatically effective. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is a different way of thinking. Back to what you were saying earlier. And um, does, does that connect also then to does an approach like that connect to leader standard work, if you don't mind, you know, giving a little bit you know, insert insight into, you know, leaders who are leading that way, what's their expectation in terms of how they're spending some time, or maybe you can talk about what leader standard work means to you as a, a chief medical officer. Yeah. Um, so here's one way it fits. So our concept of leader standard work, how we use it is first we have leaders um, take all this organizational requirement into account, think through what is it that they personally bring to the table um, think through what are they personally accountable for. And we have people sort of state their mission and purpose. And so we describe, you know, what is it that over the next two or three years, I need to personally focus on and be successful at to advance the needs of the company. Um, and once you express that, you take a look at the work, you take a look at what's being asked for strategically, um, your development of other people, your own personal development, and you decide, okay, what's in, what's you know out of these this mission or this purpose? What do I need to actually work on? You start with that, and then you take a look at the, the demands in your environment, and you say, well, okay, what do I not need to work on? Where can I stop doing something because this is really where I need to focus? And then that allows you to approach everything: your meetings, your what time you spend with your reports, what time, what what are you talking about when you're out on the front lines. Uh, maybe coaching uh, leaders, for example, um, mm -hmm. helps to keep all of that very focused. And that's one way we tie in the what we how we approach leader standard work with the um, uh, with the bigger picture. And of course, mine at my level looks my leader standard work looks very different than it would for a frontline physician leader who typically has some very specific tasks that they're responsible for. Uh, where mine is. Um, I certainly have tasks, but uh, it's a lot of times providing direction, leading teams um, that that I have to think about, you know, if I'm in this meeting, am I, how is this, um, how is this furthering my purpose in this organization, my mission? Um, and if it's not, why am I here? 
uh, forcing yourself to ask those questions. I, you know, the first uh, time I went through designing and developing my own a few years ago here, this, my current job, um, I dropped a bunch of meetings. I realized that um, I'd been invited to things that I was not providing any value. Yeah, it was interesting sometimes to listen to information and give my opinion, but none of them were contributing to what I, where I thought I really needed to spend my time. Mm. So there, there's, there's an element or you know, going back to ways of thinking again, um, challenging the way we've always done things as, as a lean principle or mindset. One of the things I, um, you know, so again, thinking about physician leaders, a lot of times uh, early in their career, they're identified because they're, you know, good at being clinicians. There's also the part of their interest in, in leadership. And you'll get often very eager people who want to take on a lot. And part of my discussion with them when we talk about this concept of leader standard work is the importance of saying no. And that, you know, that, um, uh, that reflects on personal life too. You know, I always tell people, please start with your personal values and think through very carefully what are your needs for your personal life, your family life, uh, your own well-being, and consider how that fits into the other choices you make. And that's a, that's a dialogue we always have very early on. Um, I was really surprised and pleased one time when the first time this happened, when one of those leaders came to me and we were kind of reviewing his thinking about his own standard work, and he had written time into his day for reflection and meditation. Mm. Um, I was actually really excited about that because I realized that um, uh, that uh, not only was that possible, that that giving him permission to um, sort of put his own health and well-being first uh, resonated, and it actually led to some decisions about how he spent his time during the day. And I, you know, the, the reflection and meditation coming back to the idea of helping lead to more effective outcomes as a leader, that that time Absolutely. is not a waste of time or an indulgence. I'm sure you could test that hypothesis of now that if he's holding to the standard work and, and uh, respecting the time for reflection and meditation, how would he evaluate, oh, you know, he's planned, he's, I assume do, he or she is doing, studying, and then adjusting. Is it leading to, to more effectiveness? That, that's one of the key things. That, yeah, that's, that's yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, well, we, we, we've got a little time. Maybe uh, let's hop back in the elevator again, if you will, if you forgive me for this construct. But let's say, you know, you go, you're hopping in the elevator and there's, there's a patient and, and they, they see somehow you're carrying something and related to lean. And like, oh, you know, my, uh, my cousin works here and we were at dinner the other night and she said something about, yeah, I don't know. They signed me up for some sort of lean training next week and she wasn't sure what it is. So since I've got you, what, what, what's this lean thing all about? How, how, how is that good for um, us as patients? Mm, good question. One way I'd respond is that uh, the leadership of the company is, as understands more and more how important it is that people that are here, you know, taking care of patients or uh, running a laboratory, doing lab tests all day, all of us have a role in uh, delivering better, better health care to patients. And this lean stuff is about how can I learn as an individual employee to come to work every day thinking about how I can make work better, uh, how I can make my sort of my life better, what tools can I learn? Um, are there ways that uh, I can engage my friends and my colleagues and, and things like this? And just opening their eyes about, we really do want to manage in a different way. Um, you know, I've, so I'm outside the elevator. So again, a lot of stories about how wonderful and dramatic the responses are from people who work frontline jobs every day, once, they, once the concepts sort of sink in and they realize they actually have contributed and actually their life has changed for the better. Um, and, you know, again, lots of stories, specific stories about that. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned earlier and, uh, you know, really appreciated, you know, you, you bringing up um, the goal of improving um, quality um, that lean was appealing to you as, as a, a way to improve um, quality, you know, that, that could break down into, you know, both the quality of the patient experience um, the quality of the care that's being provided um, in, in terms of measurable outcomes. And, um, you know, a lot of organizations 
I think somehow, you know, um, maybe they're already anchored in the idea of cost cutting and they, they get introduced to lean and they say, Oh, great. This is a new method for cost cutting. And, um, think, you know, as opposed to viewing it like you were describing as, as being based on quality and seeing that efficiency and cost can also come along at the same time. That, that, that's a difference in mindset, right? Yeah, Mark, you make a really good point there. Uh, you know, I have heard this many times specifically that, oh, lean, that means cost cutting. I mean, I do actually hear that or heard that a lot. In fact, so messaging, anytime I talk with somebody who is learning the concept and often have to repeat this to some of my executive colleagues that that's not what lean is about. That if you right. understand lean thinking and apply uh, the principles appropriately and consistently, you will see lower costs. And again, pl plenty of specific examples, but um, in some ways the, the word itself lean is um, a challenge because of that connotation. Um, again, is, I think, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I, I look at, and many times, improved cost is an outcome of an improved uh, process. Right. And, um, yeah, I mean, this, uh, the word lean, I mean, you know, um, I mean, it's not a word I've shied away from, but it, I, I realize uh, it, the, the word has certain connotations that are, are negative when, um, you know, Jim Womack and, and John Krafsik and Dan Jones and others were, were coming up with a, a generalized word um, so that they didn't have to label it Toyota something because other automakers, <laughs> I know from my own experience in the auto industry, they were, were happy to maybe try to copy Toyota, but they didn't want to call it that or admit that. Um, and, and Jim and I talked about this in a podcast, I forget which episode, but it's going back probably at least 13 years ago, where you know I, I brought, the, brought the question up and, and, and Jim said, well, yeah, you know, he realized the word sometimes gets in the way and that was the best word we came up with at the time. Um, so we can't rewrite history. And, and, and again, I, I don't mean to criticize um, anybody who, who brought the word. The more important thing is bringing the concepts and the practices um, across subsets of manufacturing. Um, you know, early, you know, we're talking about being different. I started my career in a General Motors factory that made engines, and it was easy for people in the engine plant to say, like, oh, well, this lean Toyota stuff might work in an assembly plant, but what we're doing is real manufacturing. We're cutting metal. <laughs> yeah. I think this human <laughs> tendency to say we're different, we're more complicated. Uh, um, but anyway, um, you know, the, the ideas are, are transferable as – as, as, as so many people are, are proving in so many different settings. So, um, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. The way we manage that question about the um, language is I actually discourage the general use of lean uh, as mm -hmm. a term. Um, when we talk about the work that we're doing, I, I really encourage people to be specific about the work and sometimes the tool, if that's appropriate, um, because you're right, when we when people say, "Well, that's a, we're doing a lean thing," well, no, you're not. You're doing something that we believe is a is the right way to help improve, you know, something we're working on. Um, the same thing with the Japanese terms you mentioned earlier. Uh, my experience with that has been that uh, those can be a turnoff to some people. They just for a variety of reasons. Um, and again, we found it more effective just to describe the activity and the purpose, uh, and people people resonate with that. Uh, um, and then to your point about uh, healthcare, I mean, I'll just, there's some great examples and I'll use uh, an approach to treating sepsis, which is a life-threatening bloodstream infection, bacterial infection, uh, usually, that following specific checklists where the interventions are evidence-based, you know, proven to be effective, and doing that consistently every time you have uh, encounter a patient that has that problem, uh, the the ability to successfully treat that patient goes up dramatically. And that's been proven over and over. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's a very lean principle to say, we're going to evaluate the steps by which we approach this problem. We're going to examine them. We're going to apply evidence based. And if we don't know, we'll study it um, and continuously improve. And it's a great example of uh, what, what I consider really a lean improvement process in healthcare. Yeah. And I appreciate what you're saying. Um, yeah, I've, I've said similar things. Um, 
somebody says, well, we're going to do such and such because it's lean. I'm like, well, if we're using lean as a synonym for the word better, why don't we just say better? Or, you know, <laughs> let, let's prove through a, a small test of change if it is indeed better. Because um, I, I think. Yeah, yeah I would agree. Be, and, and yeah. Yeah, you just get past the barrier of the language piece and you can get right into the stories and the here's, here's how. Here's, I'll yeah. give you some examples of why this will work. The other thing I'll mention, Mark, you know, uh, about my leadership learning is the value of going to see in healthcare, but also other industries. There's a lot to learn. Uh, many of the folks in on the West Coast have been to uh, automobile and furniture and a variety of other uh, industries. And that really helps the concepts sink in to see those applied in a non-healthcare setting. People say, oh, now I kind of see differently. And so that plus um, in healthcare, going to see places that may, maybe have already done work that we're thinking about and immediately seeing that a better outcome is possible uh, has been a very valuable, very valuable thing as a leader. And so I, I just put it out there to the to the, uh, the world that I can't emphasize enough to take advantage of opportunities to learn from other organizations. Um, it can be invaluable to help people you know, people come along on this journey. And um, have you had a chance, one of those factories that I've gone to with healthcare leaders uh, is, is uh, AutoLeave in Ogden, Utah. Have you done that visit? So I personally have not been to AutoLeave, but uh, okay. there are numerous people in uh, my organization who have. Um, my daughter, who works in a completely different uh, organization, has been there to visit, but I haven't. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little bit jealous. Mm. I, I do recommend it if, uh, if you get the chance, because um, what they're doing there with auto bags is also quite literally a matter of life and death. Um, it's, you know, and, and yeah, um, yeah. There, there, there's an affinity. I think the healthcare people uh, find in, uh, in going there and, and it's quite impressive with, with what they're doing. Um, you're, you're in Northern California. Did you ever have a chance to visit uh, what was then called the NUMI facility, the joint venture of Toyota and GM? I, I didn't at the time that um, I was involved in leadership we didn't have a we didn't have a great connection um, right off the bat and so I didn't personally so I only have you know I've talked with a number of people who either worked there or were consultants there and of course I've read read the stories but I don't have personal experience yeah and unfortunately that ship has sailed now that it's the Tesla main factory. Yeah, driven. Leave it, you know, I happen to. Have, yeah, I happen to have worked uh, at the time in an area where I drove past the building from time to time, and it had already uh, become a Tesla facility uh, at that point in time. Yeah. So um, anyway, but to, to wrap up here in a second on um, a healthcare note, you know, you talked about the value of learning uh, from other organizations, and you know, I think we agree that can be done across industry boundaries, but, you know, part of how we ever first crossed paths was an initiative of learning from other healthcare organizations and, and sometimes outside um, the, the healthcare value network. Um, I, was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the learning that's taken place or, or your involvement in some of those initiatives. I, you know, I love the term. I know it was thought of deliberately. Um, it's a network that brings value. I mean, that's, that is the purpose. And I would say at multiple levels, I think um, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to participate in some education of physicians from other organizations as part of that network. And I'll never forget sitting in a room with a group of execs from a, at the time it was a, a county healthcare system and a manager in the place where I worked was describing that she basically wasn't putting out fires much anymore because so much of their work was, um, designed to be, uh, you know, smoothly and, you know, efficiently done every day. Uh, I remember her telling that story and the doctors around the room were like, they just were stunned. They couldn't believe that in healthcare it was possible to get out of firefighting. Yeah. Um, that was really, it was really a revealing moment for me. I'm like, oh, wow, we have progressed a long way at this point. <laughs> uh, but again, it's an opportunity you can go see if you have a, you know, you, your ORs are not efficient. 
then there are plenty of places that have solved that nut. Uh, if you're um, having trouble with your revenue cycle stream and or your front desk registration process is full of errors, uh, that's the value of one of the values of the network is to you can literally go see a place and get get the concepts and understand not only how they got better, but again, opening uh, your eyes or other eyes that better is even possible. Yeah, and and you know, seeing that better is possible is inspiring. And then to go see that at organizations that, to some extent or to a large extent, share um, the way of thinking and and the mindsets that help um, lead to better. So whether we call it lean, better, I think the more important thing is that it's better. Um, so, Mike, as, as we wrap up, uh, I'll, I'll kind of yield to floor the the floor to you is there anything else that you'd want to add or maybe leave with the listeners as a final thought well thank you mark i i think uh, in reflection as a leader for all of this stuff to be successful you really do have to examine yourself and you have to think deeply about your commitment to personal change because none of this happens if lean is something else it's something that other people do if it's just a way to cut costs or Another common misconception is it's a way to do process improvement, and people think of think of the tool set, and that's really incomplete. For all of this to fit together, you have to change as a leader. You have to be willing to learn, put yourself out there, and be different. Um, that's a challenge, but I, I can't emphasize enough how important that is um, for anyone considering or in the middle of sort of a lean transformation in their own organization. I'll, the other thing I'll say, I am deeply, deeply grateful of all the opportunities I've had with, you know, external consultants, with the Healthcare Value Network, with uh, Catalysis, mm -hmm. uh, just deeply grateful of the, the coaching and the vision that I've gotten from, from those organizations. Well, thanks for, for giving them a shout out. And I, I, I've... I've learned a lot from my exposure to those initiatives and, and organization. And um, I value that as well. So thank you for, for mentioning that. Um, so uh, again, a uh, big thanks to our guest today, Mike Conroy, chief medical officer at Sutter medical group. You know, it, it's, it's great to hear um, your, your perspectives and, and some of your reflections. So thank you. Thank you very much for sharing those with us here today. All right. Thank you, Mark, and have a good day. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.